Good morning, everybody. Good to see you and continue this series in the Bible together. Uh, my name is Luke, and when I was in seminary, I had a professor who loved to explain Bible stories to us, stories like the ones that we've been looking at in this series. <clears throat> and there was one story he explained to us that I always wanted to kind of pass on and, and share. And he started explaining the story by saying that after um, hearing thousands of sermons in his lifetime, from the time he was a little kid all the way up to being an adult, he said from all those thousands of sermons, there was two truths that really stood out to him. The first one was that God is love, that the heartbeat of the God of the universe is one that beats with love for him. He doesn't want to use him or abuse him. He loves him. And the second truth, he said, that has been a comfort to him is um, that God is sovereign. That the, the, the God who loves him is also in control of everything that happens to him. That not a single sparrow falls to the ground or a coincidence happens that is outside of the control of the God who loves him. <clears throat> And he said, these two truths, that God loves me and that he's sovereign, have formed the bedrock of my faith. But, he said, I can confess to you that those two truths have brought me just as much pain as they have comfort. Because you would think that if you're the king's kid, life would just be perfect. Life would just be skipping down the yellow brick road all the way to Zion. But it's not. In fact, the, the road of life isn't even asphalt. And it's filled with potholes and, and sudden turns. And if, if God is sovereign, and if God loves me, he said, then why is life the way that it is? Why would God let the things happen in my life that he allows to happen? And you've probably asked that question yourself. You don't ask it every day, but there's days when you do ask that question. And anytime you do, you have a companion in Joseph. Because Joseph asked that question, and I want to introduce you to Joseph in uh, Genesis chapter 37. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along in Genesis chapter 37, and, and we'll start in verse 2. It says in verse 2, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So at this scene, this opening scene of, of the story, we have to ask ourselves, is Joseph good, the good guy, or is he a bad guy in this story? He tells on his brothers. And most commentators uh, that you look at will say, well, he's obviously a bad guy. He shouldn't have told on his brothers. He would have known this would cause turmoil. It's not good to sort of be a tattletale. But the truth is, the text doesn't really say if Joseph did the right thing or the wrong thing. If he should have, you know, kept his mouth shut or if it was, if it was good for him to 
give this bad report to his father. It just doesn't say in the text. But I'm not convinced that this is necessarily a bad thing that Joseph does here. Partly because when my professor was sort of walking us through each verse of these chapters of Genesis, he, he shared a story with us um, about when he was a kid. And he said, I was, you know, up late one night reading under the blanket with my flashlight. He said, I wasn't supposed to be, but I was. And it got real hot and stuffy under there. It's a terrible idea, he said. So I finally gave up. And as I was walking down the hallway to go to the bathroom, I saw light coming under the door of my little brother's room. And he said, well, that's not allowed. It's bad if I do it, but it's really bad if he does it. So he, you know, quietly turned the knob as gently as he could and then burst into his little brother's room. And he said that when he did that, his little brother just levitated off the bed where he was sitting several feet up into the air and then fell back to the earth. And he said, as my brother was falling back to the bed, I saw him hide something real quick underneath the covers of the bed. And he said, well, that's just disrespectful. You don't just hide something from your older brother. That's not right. So a wrestling match ensued because he wanted to see what was hidden there. And he said, you know, my little brother is younger than me, but he's wiry and I couldn't, I couldn't get him. He wouldn't give up. We just kept fighting and fighting. So finally he said, I had to get strategic. And I, I pulled the blankets off the bed and pulled my brother all the way onto the floor. But even though I had him wrapped up in the blankets and I'm fighting and fighting, he just would not give up. So he said, I finally did this tactic that older brothers do. He said, I took my knee and I put it right on his neck. And finally he said, uncle, he gave up. And what was my prize, he said? It was one of those magazines that you're not supposed to have. And all of a sudden he said, my brother became my best friend. He said, hey, buddy. He said, you don't have to tell anyone about this. Because you can come in and look at this magazine anytime you want to. In fact, I got a whole bunch of them. Yeah, and, 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 and you can see them anytime you want. Just don't tell anyone, okay? And my professor said the whole next day it was weighing on him. He said, because no one wants to be a rat. But he said, at the end of the day, he went to his little brother and he said, Either you tell dad, or I'm going to tell him. Because he can't be the dad God wants him to be if he doesn't know what's going on. And he said, it was a difficult time. But he said, I think I did the right thing. And I hope my children would do the same thing. Now, we don't know if that's what happened here when Joseph tells on his brothers. But we don't know that it's not something like that. The text just doesn't say And then what we do know is that it's an, it would create an issue between him and his brothers if he tells on them, right? We do know that. And then the next scene comes in verse 3. It says this in verse 3. <clears throat> now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. 
So is Joseph a good guy in this scene or a bad guy? A coat of many colors, it's like a coat you would make for a king. And his father gives him only this coat. So it's like he's got a, a tweed blazer that, that says favorite son right on it. And most commentators will say, yeah, he's obviously a bad guy. Strutting around in this robe, favorite son, proud, cocky, arrogant. But the text doesn't actually say that. It, it doesn't say he asked for the robe, that he wanted the robe, or that he enjoyed wearing it. The father, we could say pretty clearly, is making a mistake. My father always tells me that I'm his favorite third-born son. Because <laughs> I'm his only third-born son. And it would be foolish to pick a favorite son and show them special attention and love them more. It creates all kinds of problems in the family. And so certainly his father is sinning here. But it doesn't say Joseph is sinning. It doesn't say Joseph is the bad guy in this scene. And yet his father favors him. And it tells us why. It says, because he's born to him in his old age. So especially in the ancient world, at a certain age, men don't have children. And yet, Joseph, and yet Jacob is at that age, and he's got a young son. It gives him a sense of pride, a sense of manliness. And, uh, and he favors this son. And he loves this son. <clears throat> He's proud of him. And then Joseph has a dream in verse 5. It says this. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, when your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So is Joseph the good guy or the bad guy? in this scene. In the ancient world, older brothers in the Eastern context, I should say, they don't really bow down to younger brothers. It doesn't work that way. That's very out of order. So surely Joseph knew that this, on top of everything else, would upset his brothers, would cause more strife in the family. And so again, most commentators will say, Joseph is, uh, he's the bad guy here. He's making a mistake. He should have kept this to himself and not, not told his, his brothers about this dream that God gave him. But I'm not convinced that Joseph is necessarily the bad guy in this scene. You see, if God gives you divine information about someone else, that's out of order, that might upset them, are you supposed to keep that information from them so you don't hurt their feelings? Like, I don't know, if the Bible says that uh, if you die apart from Christ, there's a place called hell. Should you keep that a secret 
because it might offend someone if they hear about it? Probably not. In fact, we would say no. Sometimes, if God gives you something that's true about someone else, even if it makes them upset, you should tell them. And another thing we know about dreams is that you don't really get to order up your dreams. You don't get to say, you know, tonight I think I'll have a dream about this and that and that. You just go to bed and what you dream is what you dream. Joseph didn't ask for this dream. But God gave it to him. And even though he knew it would upset his brothers, he told them about it anyway. And then he has another dream. And this one's not just about his brothers. It includes who? His parents. It says in uh, verse 9, Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. In an Eastern context, would you ever tell your parents that you had a dream that they bowed down before you? Never. Because it's so out of order. It's so incorrect and dishonoring that you would never tell that to your parents. And yet, Joseph tells them anyway. And if you say, as most interpretations actually do say, that this was wrong of Joseph, that he's the bad guy in this scene as well as the others, well then again, It seems like you're implying that when God gives you divine information from God about someone else, you should hide it. And you shouldn't tell them if it's going to upset them or if it's out of order. And the reason I keep asking, is Joseph a good guy or a bad guy? Is because the tension between Joseph and his brothers keeps getting worse. From one scene To the next scene, to the next scene, the tension is increasing, and you have to decide. Is it increasing because Joseph is an evil dude who's intentionally making choices that he knows will cause family turmoil, and he does it anyway? Or is Joseph a righteous person who is doing what is is godly in each situation, even though he knows that there will likely be negative results, consequences, if he does what's right. It's not clear as the story begins. It can't be both, because then the tension changes and you have a different story. But as the scenes progress, I think it becomes more and more clear whether Joseph is the good guy or if he's the bad guy in the story. And in the verses that follow, we have to keep in mind that that this is taking place in a high-context culture, meaning they don't always spell out the details like some of us are accustomed to. So we'll pay close attention as we read starting in verse 12. It says in verse 12, 
Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring back word to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around. So the story suddenly goes that Joseph's brothers have taken the, the sheep to Shechem. It's really far away. It's like 40 miles away, which means that they probably, with their herds, had to travel for five, six, seven days to get there. And you have to ask yourself, why did they go so far away from home base? Jacob is a wealthy man, but he lives in tents because you always live near water and grass when, you have, when your wealth is cattle and sheep. And so it's curious that they decide to travel so far away. And I think as we read on, you'll see that it has something to do with the fact that they live in a small community. If you've ever lived in a small community, small town, then you know that it's wonderful because everybody knows each other. And it's terrible because everybody knows each other. <laughs> and I've had multiple teachers tell me in seminary the, the stories of what it's like to be a pastor in a small town. And they all tell stories like, I'd go jogging in the mornings and people would look out their windows at me when I ran by. And then I wouldn't go jogging one day, and they'd call me on the phone to see if I was okay, because they didn't see me. Uh, or they'd say, you know, you go to the supermarket, and everybody, wants, everybody looks and sees what's in your cart when you're checking out. And everyone wants to know which gas station you're gonna go to, because there's only two, and they're owned by two different families. So which one is it, Pastor? It's wonderful living in a small town because everyone knows each other. But it's terrible because everyone knows each other. And when the teenagers want to have a party in a small town, they don't go to grandma's basement because they don't want everybody to know about it. No, they drive a few towns away and buy the beer. Then they drive to another town and pick up the girls. Then they, they drive out to the wilderness and they have what's called a bush party. They have music, girls, beer, great time. Then they come home and nobody knows what happened. And so why does Joseph's brothers take their, take their sheep seven, five, six, seven days journey away from home base when they live in tents? So they always move towards near the grass, near the water. And we should also note that Joseph doesn't uh, volunteer to go. It doesn't say Joseph wanted to go or he's eager to go. In fact, it kind of sounds like he's willing to go. When his father asks him to go, he says, very well, I'll go. Because if he's a good guy, then he probably knows what's going on. And he probably isn't eager to make the situation worse by telling the truth. 
And why doesn't Jacob send a servant? Why Joseph? Why send Joseph? Why not a servant? Perhaps because a servant can be bribed. A servant can be coerced. But this far in the story, Joseph seems to be the guy who tells the truth, even when it gets him in trouble. And so Jacob doesn't send a servant. He sends Joseph to see what his brothers are doing. And the reaction of his brothers when he gets there tells a lot about what's going on. It says in verse 15, When Joseph arrived in Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, uh, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. <gasps> Shocker. They told their dad they were going to one place, and they went somewhere else 10 miles away. Why would they do that? If you're... If you're if your child tells you, Mom, I'm going to study at the library, and then they go to the library for 10 minutes before hopping in a car and driving to Huntington Beach, the reason they told you they're going to the library is because they don't want you to know that they're going to Huntington Beach. And if you're a single guy and someone is 10 miles away and you don't know which direction they went, you'll never find them. And yet Joseph runs into the one guy who heard them say, hey, let's go to Dothan. It's almost like God is sovereign. And so why would they go to Dothan? Perhaps because they know that Jacob will send Joseph after them, and they don't want to be found by Joseph. And um, what are they doing? Oh, well, actually, we have, we have to read the next verse. So he finds them eventually. And uh, let's see their, their response. In verse 17, it says this. They have moved on from here. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They plot to kill their brother as they see him approaching in the distance. Now, doesn't that seem a little bit extreme? I mean, you've, you've been upset with your siblings, I'm sure. But most of us have never been so upset that we began planning how we were going to kill them. It, it seems kind of like an extreme reaction, unless, of course... When they see Joseph coming in the distance, they know that they're doing something so unspeakable out there in their wild party that their father can never hear about it. And so when he finds them, they say, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. And at this point, it's, this is the most perhaps suspect part of the interpretation because despite the fact that yes it's a high context culture 
where they don't always spell out every detail of what's happening, you might think, well, if this is really what's going on, if Joseph stumbles upon his brother's bad behavior that's so bad that they want to kill him, well, it doesn't say it in the text, which is, of course, correct. But if, if you want further confirmation, then you can skip over to the next chapter, chapter 38, and just skim over it and ask yourself, why in the world is chapter 38 right here? It completely doesn't fit. You're reading and you're reading and it's all about Joseph and his brothers and then boom, out of nowhere, chapter 38. Uh, a story that doesn't fit, but it does fit. Because you see, when you're the Israelites, reading this story about your great-great-grandparents, no one wants to hear that their great-great-grandparents were terrible people. And so the story is suddenly interrupted with an account designed to give you a character backdrop to explain what the sons of Israel were like at this time. And it's hard to read. It tells you about Judah, the best of the sons of Israel, and his horrible behavior. No problem sleeping with a prostitute. No intention of, of uh, obeying God, of honoring his daughter-in-law at all. And it fits. It's not out of place. Because the author wants you to know this is the character of the sons of Israel at this time. This is why they are capable of doing such evil. In fact, that's how the chapter starts. It says, at this time. And it explains how evil they were. One day they would be great patriarchs, but not at this time. They certainly weren't. And in case you're in any doubt about the character of Joseph's brothers, they kill him. I'm sorry, they plan to kill him and throw him in a cistern. It says in verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was... There was no water in it as they sat down to eat their meal. So he, he arrives and they say, nice to see you, Joseph. They rip off his clothes and they throw him into an empty cistern. And every reader knows that in the desert, an empty cistern isn't empty. There's no water in it, but it's full of creepy, crawly desert reptiles and scorpions, and spiders, and lots of things that look for shade and moisture in the hot desert. And so the readers who read about this incident are reading about the brothers tossing Joseph into a pit of, well, lots of animals that were unclean for the Israelites. A pit of uncleanliness. And then it tells us they sit down to eat lunch. Why, why would it tell us that, that their lunch plans in the course of the story? Because you don't eat when your stomach is in knots. 
when you're feeling emotional about something. Every, a couple of times when I've been in a staff meeting with the church staff, right there while we're, we're sitting in the meeting, we'll get news, tragic news about a, a church family member. You know, someone in the church just died. And the women in the, the, women in the staff, they're, they're way more godly than the rest of us. They'll like push, their, push themselves away from the table and just bend over and they'll just start praying. But you know what we all do? We all stop eating. Everyone puts down their food, pushes away the, the, the drinks, and, you know, we're just, we just can't eat. You don't eat when you're emotional. And yet Joseph's brothers throw him in a pit to get ready to kill him, sit down, and eat a sandwich. This is how evil they are. They take his robe well, actually, first they realize, you know what? Why kill him? We can make some money off of him. And they sell him into slavery. They, they, they take his robe. They, they dip it in blood. And they take it to their father to say, hey, look, we found this robe. It's got to be Joseph's. I guess he's dead. Wild animal must have killed him. And his father sure that he's dead, goes into mourning. It says in verse 34, Then Jacob tore his robes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. When my uh, professor was walking through the verses and explaining the whole uh, section here to us, he shared with us that his own, his own brother uh, died in a car accident along with his wife. He said it was three days before Christmas, and he said it was tragic. He said, I had to go and identify the body, and I had to go and tell my parents that Scott was dead. And he said, it, it was a, a difficult season of grief for me. He said, but it, my grief was nothing compared to my parents' grief. He said, my parents were incapacitated for three years. He said, there's just nothing worse than losing a child. Children just aren't supposed to die before their parents. He said, it's just, it's just wrong. And these brothers put their father through hell to save their reputation and to kill a brother they hated. So is Joseph a, a good guy or a bad guy in the story? As we move from scene to scene, I think it becomes more clear which one it is. And as Joseph is heading off to Egypt in chains. You know what I think he's thinking? This is crazy. I, I keep trying to do what's right. I keep trying to honor God and my parents. And look where it's got me. Nowhere. Worse than nowhere. My family who's supposed to love me and protect me and care for me has sold me 
into slavery. What's the good of godliness? You've probably asked that question yourself at some point in life when you're trying to do the right thing and it gets worse. Maybe you have a dream of serving God with your athletic ability. You're really good at soccer and you work hard at it. And eventually, after your discipline and hard work, you make it all the way to the semi-pros. And when that day comes, and you put on your jersey with your name across the back, it just smells like success. And you're not even worried about the tryouts because you know that you've prepared for this moment. And that you want it more than anyone else. And you're, you're here in part because you want to serve God, because you know the platform you'll have, that you can serve with athletes in action and you can shine the light of Christ because the world loves soccer. And as you sit down and the coach starts to go over the schedule of the upcoming season, you listen and you listen and you go up to him afterwards and you say, coach, I just want you to know I'm with you 110%. I just have a little problem with Sunday morning practice. I signed up to, to teach a, a Sunday school class at my church. It's a commitment I made. I want to honor it. It's part of, my, part of my faith. But apart from Sunday morning, I want you to know I'm all in. And, and the look on your coach's face is not the look you were expecting to see. And he says, no, son, you're not. You're not in a hundred and 10%. I admire your convictions, and I hope it works out for you, but leave your jersey in the locker when you leave today. We only have room for people giving everything. And that's not really the way you pictured the conversation going. When in your heart you decided to honor the Lord and, and you felt him tell you what to do, you didn't picture your dreams of soccer going up in flames just like that. And the coach is already walking away. Why, God, would you let this happen? If you're sovereign and if you love me, why would you crush a dream right in front of me when I'm trying to do what's right? What's the good of godliness? Or maybe you wanted to serve God as a medical missionary. You wanted to be like Jesus and bring healing hands to the hurting and the poor around the world. And so you work your tail off and you take all the biology courses even though you're not good at them. And finally the day comes after many summer schools where you're taking the entrance exam. And a, and a day before the exam, someone tells you that there's a way to cheat. In fact, everyone's doing it. You can put the information on the calculator you're allowed to use in the exam. And if you think someone's going to catch you, it's fail-safe. You just push a button, it's all deleted. And everyone's doing it. And for a moment, you think to yourself, yeah, I'll do it too. Just to even the playing field so it's fair. But then you think, no, I probably shouldn't. The Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so you don't. You study like you always do, and you take the exam, and you feel good about it. 
because you're going to get the grade you deserve. And then a couple weeks later, the manila envelope arrives in the mail. And the first sentence is, we regret to inform you, and your heart just drops. Really, God? When I tried to honor you, when I did it right and I worked so hard, what's the good of godliness then? If I obey you and it makes my life worse, I should, if I just put those answers in, I'd be further ahead. You've asked that question at some point in your life. And Joseph asked it to all the way to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, what happens? He gets purchased by Potiphar, says he's the captain of the guard. So is that like the top position or the bottom? It's probably like the middle military job, you know? You've got the Navy SEALs, and then you've got the people who wear the funny hats in front of Buckingham Palace. And that's Potiphar. He's in charge of the captain of the guard. It's nice middle management type of military situation. And being a middle manager is nice. I'm a little embarrassed to say this because, you know, if you have a good assistant, they can do most of the work for you. And guess what? I say that because I have a really great assistant, two of them. But Joseph gets bought by Potiphar. And guess what? He's a good guy. He works really hard. And he starts managing everything Potiphar is supposed to manage until Potiphar doesn't have to do anything. And not only that, but everything Potiphar is in charge of starts getting better, starts getting blessed. Life's going real good for Potiphar. He's waking up at 10 a.m., strolling into work, shaking a few hands, leaves at 1.30 p.m. It's a nice situation when Joseph is running everything for him. And so you would, you would think that if Joseph is working so hard, despite his circumstances, if he's serving God and Potiphar so faithfully, that everything is getting blessed, you think God would honor him. You think God would bless Joseph for his hard work, for his obedience. But what happens? Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph, and she says, come to bed with me. She starts seducing him, trying to get him to sleep with her, which sounds, you know, when you read it and you're like, what is going on? Like, this is not typical behavior, you know? That doesn't happen to most people. I go weeks sometimes before someone says that to me. No, I'm just kidding. Right? This is, it's, it's strange. But the text gives us an explanation of why Potiphar's wife is coming on to him so strong. It says in um, verse 6, 39, verse 6. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge... He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. So there you go. 
Joseph is not your average looking dude. He's handsome and he's buff. It's like a ripped, give me a star's name, uh, Brad Pitt in his prime. He's ruddy, he's fit, he's handsome, and she likes him. And um, that's not, and whenever it gives physical descriptions like that, it's usually significant. Because the Bible almost never tells you what people look like. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. Um, so when it mentions like a physical detail like that, it's usually significant to the story. It's usually a reason why they're mentioning it, especially in a high context culture. Especially when they see fit to mention something about Potiphar in the same breath. What do they say about Potiphar? It says in verse 5, from that time he put him, that's Joseph, in charge of his household. And all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. What is Potiphar's hobby? Eating. His concern is just with his food. And he likes his food. Joseph is handsome, ruddy, muscular. Oh, and Potiphar, he doesn't do anything but eat. He stops on his way home when he leaves the office at 1.30 p.m. And he hits up a few hometown buffets on the way. Because he wants to warm up for dinner. And then when he finally gets home and opens the door, he says, Honey, I'm home. He's ready for the main course, dinner. And uh, Potiphar's wife looks at uh, Potiphar. And she looks at Joseph, and she looks at Potiphar, I mean, I'm sorry, Potiphar, who looks at her husband, and she wants Joseph. She wants him bad. She comes on to him. She seduces him over and over and over again. And how old is Joseph at this point? The story started by saying he's 17. So we have to imagine, maybe in his early 20s, few years later. And what do we know about young men in their early 20s? They're attracted to the opposite sex. And if Joseph gives in to this temptation, will his parents find out? No. He's far away. They think he's dead. What about his church? Are they going to hear what happened? No. There's no spiritual community in Egypt for him. Almost no one would say no to this situation. What happens if he doesn't sleep with her? She might not like that. She might retaliate. She might get angry with him. He has nothing, no motivation to not sleep with her except for one thing. God. He doesn't want to dishonor God or dishonor his master. And so what happens? 
She comes on to him again, and he runs, probably because he's a young man in his 20s, and he wants to run from temptation because it's strong, and he runs, and she turns on him, and she accuses him of rape. Now, scholars will say, if you rape the, the wife of a military commander in Egypt at this time, you're dead. Instantly, dead. And yet, interesting, Joseph isn't killed. He gets sent where? To prison, to a dungeon. So why? Possibly because Potiphar knows that Joseph didn't rape his wife. Potiphar knows the character of Joseph, his star assistant, and he knows the character of his wife. You don't go from from pure wife to begging, begging slaves for sex without a story along the way. And so the only thing worse than going to prison for a crime you didn't commit is being sent there by someone who knows you didn't do it, but sends you there anyway to protect his own honor because of what you've been accused of doing to him. And so it doesn't say, and it doesn't need to, that Joseph probably felt betrayed by Potiphar, but also by God. He must have been thinking, what is going on? I tried to honor you, God. I tried to do what was right, even though it was hard. And it gets me here. It gets me in chains. It gets me... In prison, what's the good, then, of godliness if it leads me here? And you've probably asked the same thing at some point in your life. You're a CFO for a company, and you're working late one night. And your boss comes in and says, man, the numbers are bad this quarter. And you go, yeah, they're bad. We really need to get those numbers up. Yeah, I know. If we don't get those numbers up, then the shareholders' meeting is going to not go well. And the stock price is going to tumble. I know. Yeah. Tell me about it. We've got to get the sales team together. We've got to come up with a plan. No! Don't be obtuse. There's no time in the quarter left to get the numbers up. Just put the numbers down that the shareholders want to see. Or we're not getting our bonuses. And you realize he's asking you to lie. And so you say, I can't do that. You know, I'm, I'm morally opposed to that. I, I want to put down the right numbers. I, I'm a Christian. Put down the numbers that need to be there or you're done. And you put down the right numbers, the true ones, the bad ones. And you feel good about it. Because you did what was right, what God would want you to do until a couple of weeks later, while you're driving home in a car, you're going to have to return to the leasing agency to tell your wife you're unemployed, to tell your kids they're going to have to drop out of college, to put the house back up on the market. And you know what you're thinking? You're thinking, this is crazy. 
God, why would you let this happen? If you love me and if you're all sovereign, then why would this happen? When I'm trying to do what I heard you tell me to do, what's the good of godliness? You've asked that question, and Joseph asked that question as well. So what happens next? He gets to prison. And in prison, what does he do? He gets put in charge of the whole prison. Because he's a good guy. And he's responsible. And the next thing you know, he's running the whole prison. He's such a good guy, in fact, that when a couple of fellow prisoners have a little trouble with their dreams, he offers to help. He says, hey, I'm an expert in dreams. What's your dreams? And one of them is the, the king's baker or the pharaoh's baker. The other one's his cupbearer. And he says when he hears the dreams to the baker, it's not going to work out for you. Tells him the truth. And when he hears the dream of the cupbearer, he says, you're going to be restored to your position uh, to Pharaoh. And I just have a small favor to ask, he says. When you're restored, can you mention me to Pharaoh? Why? Because Pharaoh's the one guy in the whole world who can get him out of prison. And what does the cupbearer do after he's restored to his position? He forgets about Joseph for two years. So what, so what has uh, Joseph's career path looked like up to this point? His trajectory in life. Starts off pretty good. Son of a wealthy uh, herder. Favorite son. Coat of many colors. Then what happens? Sold into slavery. And then what happens after he's sold into slavery? Falsely accused of rape. Sent to prison. Then what happens? Forgotten about for two years. His trajectory has been down, 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 and all the way down. Joseph has been doing what's right. But even though he does what's right, the consequences keep getting worse. And now he's in a dungeon, a prison forgotten about for years. And then one day, well, I guess I should say, at that point, you might consider not doing what's right when it's worked out so badly. But at one point, Joseph has, or I'm sorry, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a dream. And um, suddenly, the uh, cupbearer who forgot about Joseph, he says, um, hey, I know a guy. Yeah, he's in prison. He helped me with the dream. And so Pharaoh sends for Joseph to be brought from prison. And, and listen to what it says in verse 14, chapter 41. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Oh, that's interesting. It's telling us the story of, of Joseph being called before Pharaoh. And it seems, it sees fit to describe his grooming to us. 
That's a little weird. Why do we care that he has to be shaved and, and, and cleaned and, and, and made nice? Because this is increasing the tension of this moment. Joseph is filthy. He's been sitting in a sewer for years. He hasn't shaved. He's covered in filth like an animal. They can't put him in front of Pharaoh. So they have to clean him and shave him and wash him because he's been in a pit. And they bring him before Pharaoh. And, and if you are Joseph and they bring you before the one person who can set you free, what would you be willing to do for that person? To get out of prison? Anything they ask you to do. And in verse 15, it says this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can hear a dream and you can interpret it. So this is Joseph's chance. You know what I'd be saying at that moment if I was standing before Pharaoh? I'd say, I can do anything you want me to do. You want me to sing and dance? I could do that. I could uh, do your laundry for you. Like, you just name it, and I'll do it. Please. Because Joseph's whole life, he's done what was right, whatever the situation. And his life has gotten worse and worse and worse. Until now, he's plucked out of a sewer and placed before Pharaoh, and he has to decide. Do I do the thing I've done my entire life? Do I do what's right? Or do I change course? And do I try to do something, anything, to change the trajectory of my life? To get out of this pit, out of the crosshairs of God. And you've undoubtedly faced moments of decision like this as well in your own life. You're not a perfect um, woman. You're not a perfect wife. Nobody is. But you've tried hard to be a woman of the Lord, to be a Proverbs 31 wife. And after 29 years, your husband comes home from work one day, and he says, I'm trading you in for a younger model. What? You don't, you don't trade in spouses. You trade in cars, not people. And he says, I'm trading you in for a younger woman. And just like that, your, your marriage is shattered, and you're in an apartment alone, too humiliated to talk to your mutual friends. These are supposed to be the golden years, and they've been turned to brass. They're useless. And you think, why, God? After all my efforts to be faithful to you for all these years, would you let this happen to me? What's the good 
of godliness anyway. And at that moment, perhaps you have to decide, do I keep honoring God? Do I keep obeying him and being faithful? Or do I try something else? Because this obviously isn't working. You've had those moments of decision in your life. And Joseph has one of those moments as he stands before the one man with the power to set him free. And let's see what Joseph does. In verse 16, this is Joseph's response to Pharaoh. He says, I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. His answer to Pharaoh is you're not God. God is God. He can answer your dreams, but I can't. Pharaoh considers himself the God King. And when given a chance to speak, Joseph says something so disrespectful, points to the one true God, and says only he can interpret dreams, that there's no doubt that he's done. You don't disrespect the God King like that. And yet, uh, Pharaoh must really want this dream answered because he's like, okay. And then he tells him his dream. And Joseph says, that's an easy one. Uh, the dream means you're going to have seven good years followed by seven years of famine. And if I were you, I'd prepare during the seven good years for the seven bad years. Store up some extra food and you'll be ready for them. And Pharaoh says, this is great. I'm going to do it. I just need an assistant, someone to administrate this. Are you available? And Joseph says, uh, let me check my schedule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can make that work. I could do that. And what happens to Joseph's career path at that moment? We'll read in verse 41. It says this. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. Joseph goes from the dungeon to the prince of Egypt in a single moment. And so what's the good of godliness? The good of godliness is this. If you obey God, you will be rewarded by God. If you honor God, no matter the consequences, he will honor you. That doesn't mean we're all going to become the prince of Egypt. That's not the point of the story. In fact, sometimes when you obey God, you obey him all the way to the death. It might cost you your life. But no one in the next life 
will look God in the face and say, you were not good to me. You did not reward me for my faithfulness to you. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? Lazarus is, is godly and he's a poor beggar who dies on the road. And the rich man is rich and he has it all. But when their lives are over, God rewards each of them according to their obedience and their situations are reverse. And so if Joseph had at any point decided he'd had enough, that he'd tried all this honor God, obey him nonsense, and that the consequences were just too great, and he turned course and started doing life his way, he would have missed the incredible blessing that God had for him. And so when you and I find ourselves at those moments of decision, may we always choose to honor and obey the God who rewards his faithful servants, no matter what it costs us. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for not just telling us truths, God, not just saying you will be rewarded, but then you even give us stories of people who are rewarded, truth with clothes on, real life examples of how you treat your people. And so God, we just thank you for this opportunity to, to read one of the stories in the Bible. And we ask that you'd help us to apply it and keep it in our minds this week, God, so that we might honor you. And we ask that you would Keep us, Lord, faithful and bring us back again to continue to feast on your word, Lord, our spiritual food with each other in worship, in our life groups, in our homes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.